Open up your Bibles this morning as we continue in the book of Amos. Once again this morning in chapter 1, verse 3, all the way through chapter 2, verse 3, for three transgressions and four, part two. Now we started a couple of weeks ago in the book of Amos with the word that Amos, not the word that Amos heard, but the word that Amos saw. In Amos chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This is the word that Amos saw, a word that is not simply a message instead, the word that is the expression of a person the very word of the Lord himself, that it is the outworking, the glory of his character. The word that came to this shepherd two years before the earthquake. During the concurrent reign of two kings, Uzziah the king of Judah and Jeroboam, that would be the second of Israel. You may ask yourself, why are there two kingdoms among the children of Jacob? The answer is very straightforward. It is because of sin. And what did Amos see? What Amos saw was nothing less than the Lord himself roaring forth from Zion. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. The Lord roaring forth from Zion has a dual effect. The wicked harden their hearts, but the children of God run to him, trembling in his roaring. In Hosea chapter 11, verses 10 through 11, the prophet writes, They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children, as opposed to those who are not, shall come trembling from the west, and they shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. For indeed, it is true that God has things that are like no other. He has a love that is like no earthly love. He has a fear that is like no earthly fear. He has a roaring that is not like the roaring of any earthly lion. It is truly stated in Proverbs chapter 10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and that the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Make no doubt about it, Amos is a book of judgment, but it is a judgment that is necessary unto salvation. For if you're going to be saved, there must be something to be saved from. As a matter of fact, at the very first Jerusalem council recorded in Acts chapter 15, James the James confirms that what Amos saw was nothing less than the promise of the gospel itself. You may be asking yourself this morning, and as you may have been over the last couple of weeks, and as you may as we continue through this book, because let's face it, folks, this stuff is not typically coffee cup material. 
If this is all about the promise of the gospel itself, then why do we see the Lord standing on Zion roaring forth His judgment at the nations? And the answer, once again, is sin. The focus of Amos is on Israel's sin specifically. It was a sin that was worse than that of simple demonic idolatry. Instead, it was a counterfeit that was very closely likened to the counterfeit of Satan himself. You see, they attempted to supplant the one true God with their version of who and what they wanted God to be. In other words, what they did is they said, oh yes, Yahweh is God. Most certainly. And His Scripture, His Word, is what He says about Himself and about His character, but in actuality, He's really different than that. No, He's better than what He's told you He actually is. And for this atrocity, the roar of the Lord comes forth from Zion. But first... Before Amos turns his attention to the sin of Israel particular, he hems them in with the neighbors that are around them. And he begins to speak to the nations that are associated in direct proximity all around the kingdom of Israel. He is doing what the Lord spoke to Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 14, where it is written, Thus says the Lord concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given the people of Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land, and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. Last week, out of this list, we looked specifically at the kingdom of Tyre. A people who at one point in time in history had been as close to the kingdom of Israel as another kingdom could get right up to the moment that they weren't. For they forsook the covenant of brotherhood and in doing so became nothing less than the prophetic picture of the fall of Satan himself. One that was so near the covenant, one that was so near the promise, one near that was so near the throne of David, and yet fell utterly so far. This morning, the rest of Israel's Gentile neighbors. Now, as we move through chapter 1 and into the beginning of chapter 2, you're going to notice that there is a certain literary device that is being, and I know this is the dorky stuff that you've just got to go through, okay? Just give me a second. There is a certain literary device that repeats itself over and over and over and over. There is a format, there is a template, if you will, with which the Lord is speaking. And when he speaks to um, Amos... Let's go ahead and look. Uh, let's go ahead and look at Tyre, since we've been there already. In verse nine, for thus says the Lord, the one true God, the God of Israel, not the one that they want Him to be, not the box they've tried to put Him in, not the one they think they need Him to be, but the actual one Himself. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom. And did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. 
And so I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. In each of these statements, you see a particular outline. First of all, the declaration that it is the Lord himself that is speaking, and that Amos is just there as a secretary to take notes. The Lord is speaking. This is the very thing that he is roaring forth from Zion. This is not the unintelligible roarings of a giant cat. This is the roaring of a God who invented the concept of communication. And he has something to roar about. And what he roars about is the transgression of the people. Three transgressions and for four. In every single one of these instances, speaking to every single one of these peoples. Now you will notice as we move through with this, through this, that almost none of them actually have four transgressions listed. Some of them only have one listed. What you're seeing here is not a literal statement that they did three things. Oh, nope, the accountant angel just updated me. They actually did four. What you're seeing here is not a literal statement. Instead, it's the idea that their transgression has gone more than far enough. It's like saying, well, three strikes and you're out, but this guy's already got four. Now there is a certainty that judgment will fall for three transgressions and for four. The third statement, I will not revoke the punishment. What is being said here is absolute. This is not an admonishment to do well. This is not a warning to do better. This is not a threat if you don't. Instead, what is contained herein is a sovereign decree of judgment. I will not revoke the punishment. It literally means I will not turn it around. No amount of repentance, bargaining, or begging will sway him in these matters. Not that they would repent anyway, for they have hardened their hearts in their sin. And then lastly, God moves on to specifics. He declares that he is the Lord and he has the right to judge, that they have gone more than far enough to merit it, that he will not revoke the punishment, that this is not a warning, this is not a threat, this is not an admonishment, this is a decree. And then he speaks to the specifics the charge of what they've done, and the punishment that is to fit the crime. And so with that template in mind, let's begin this morning in Amos chapter 1, verses 6-8, through 8, and look at what the Lord has to roar at Gaza about. And I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can here this morning until it comes to the point in time that we need to slow down. So in Amos chapter 1, verses 6-8, through 8, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. And I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Here you see the Lord's anger and wrath, not simply kindled, but 
burning like a bonfire against all of Gaza and all of the cities of the Philistines. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you will know that it is these people that includes the city of Gath, the home of a guy named Goliath and the sons of the Anakim, the giants of old, of which many of the spies that went into the land with Joshua and Caleb were absolutely terrified of because of their size and because of their evil. As a matter of fact, this week when we're in the book of Joshua at camp, we will see these events and see the 12 spies go into the land and they come out and two of them are confident because they fear the Lord their God and 10 of them fear giants a lot more than they fear God and they are literally quaking in their sandals. They say to Moses and the people, we are like grasshoppers before them. God's anger burns against them for their sin. What did they do? They sold entire groups. They sold entire groups of people entire groups of people out of the nation of Israel to Edom. They were slave traders. They made their trade in the buying and selling of human beings, but not just any human beings, specifically of the people of Israel and not selling them to just anybody, but selling them particularly to Edom. If you remember from last week... One of the things that was listed along among Tyre's offenses, apart from forsaking the covenant of brotherhood, or more accurately, out of forsaking the covenant of brotherhood, they also sold many of the people of Israel to Edom. The descendants of Esau. If you'll remember from our study in the book of Romans in chapter 9, this is the way that the promise came. This is the way it came when Rebecca was pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. Not, not because of what they would do, but so that his purpose and election might stand according to him who calls. It's written that Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The descendants of Esau would buy Israelite slaves every single time they had the chance because they hated the sons of Jacob. In Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, it says, Now Esau hated Jacob because the blessings with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. This was the heart of Esau for his brother. And having been unable to fulfill his murderous intent, now the descendants of Esau attempt to enslave the descendants of Jacob. They will buy every Israelite that they can get their hands on. Scripture does not record how God's punishment for Gaza would be fulfilled because they sold off the people of God to Edom. I don't know how it happened. 
I just know that you can't find any more giants there today. But it is not simply the Philistines that are the focus of the roar of God from Zion. In Amos chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, the narrative continues. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually. He kept his wrath forever. And so I will send fire upon Taman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Well, both the Philistines and the Tyrians had a habit of selling Israeli slaves to the highest bidder they could find, and apparently Edom was always there with their handout. And so now, having addressed these two nations, one of which never had a covenant of brothership, but had always been at enmity with the people of God, another one who even worse had once had a covenant of brothership and forsook it in order that they may instead do business with those who hate the people of God. Now he turns to Edom itself. Esau's descendants. Those who hated Jacob were in turn hated by God. In Romans chapter 9, verse 10 through 13, as we alluded to earlier, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Esau hated Jacob, and God hated Esau. But let me tell you something. God didn't hate Esau because Esau hated Jacob. That's not why. So get this in your head now. Esau hates Jacob. He'll buy every single one of his children as slaves that he can get his hands on. Esau hates Jacob, wanted to kill him. He hated him specifically because of the blessing that came to Jacob. He hated him because of Romans chapter 9. That's what Genesis chapter 27 says. Genesis chapter 27, look, there is a lot of reasons that Jacob... If we can pass from the notes here for a second. There's a lot of reasons that Jacob would get under your skin. Before Jacob was a born-again man, before his name was changed to Israel, before he started walking with a limp because he wrestled with God all night long and Jesus thumped his head before all that stuff happened, there was a lot of reasons that Jacob could get under your skin, more than we have time to list this morning. You could preach sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon over it. He was a whiny, snotty little dude. But none of that's why Esau hated him. Genesis tells us why Esau hated him. Esau hated him because of the blessing that came to him. Esau hated Jacob and God hated Esau. But God did not hate Esau because Esau hated Jacob. Instead, Esau hated Jacob out of the very reason that God hated him. Esau was godless. Esau was a godless man. 
It tells us so directly in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verses 15 through 16. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. In other words, what we're saying is this, is God hated Esau because Esau was godless. That's why God hated Esau. And because Esau was godless and Jacob wasn't, because the blessing of God that Esau wanted nothing to do with wasn't coming to him, but instead the blessing was coming to Jacob, therefore Esau hated Jacob. God hated Jacob because Esau was godless. Esau hated Jacob because Esau, because Jacob wasn't. Esau was never satisfied in his hatred. The Lord says to Amos, He has pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. There are men in this world who think that if they were truly wronged, that it puts them in a position to be able to hold anger for that wrong perpetually until it is addressed. God would disagree. You know what, folks? If you've wronged somebody, you should by all means. Scripture tells us no doubt about it. Man, if you've done somebody wrong, if you've sinned against someone, you should go to them and repent and you should make it right. But what Scripture does not tell us, if someone has sinned against you, if someone has wronged you, that you are not required to hold on to that until they come to you and repent and make it right. You're free to forgive them right where you sit right now. You're not bound to that. God's justice is bound to that, but yours isn't. Buddy, if someone has legitimately sinned against you, you are not bound by the word of God to hold on to that until the day that they finally come and repent. You are free to forgive them right now. Man, Esau tore perpetually. It was never enough. And therefore, the judgment of God will not relent. So I will set fire upon the wall. Oh, sorry. So I will set fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. In the book of Malachi, at the very, very beginning, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, God expands on what he's going to do with Esau and Edom to the prophet Malachi, the oracle of the word of the Lord of Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? And yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will build the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. 
your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. The Lord roars forth from Zion. He roars against the Philistines. He roars against the Tyrenians. He roars against the Edomites. He roars against the Ammonites. In chapter 1 and verses 13 through 15, the decrees continue. For thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their borders. And so I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile. He and his princes together, declares the Lord. Now these are some brutal, violent people. They have ripped open pregnant women. Why? In order that they might enlarge their boundaries. That their territory, that their influence, that their purview may be bigger. They've done it all for a bigger piece of the pie. Margaret Sanger would have fit in really well with the Ammonites. She was the founder of Planned Parenthood. She was a woman of Irish descent and thought that minorities, particularly black people, were way too much of a problem for the boundaries that she thought she ought to have influence over. Like the Ammonites, she was very effective seeing how 40% of all abortions in America are black children while they only represent 13% of the population. Let me ask you something about an immutable God. That's a $5 word to mean a God that does not change. If he was this angry about it, if he was this angry about it over two millennia ago, Do you think that just because they've clinicaled it up, he's any less angry about it today? Friends, if you read the book of Leviticus, you will find that there is a blood-for-blood equivalent when it comes to human life. And what that means is the image of God in a man is given a very definite value before the face of God. What that means is when it comes time for the judgment... It doesn't matter what percentage of the overall population you have decided to throw to the fires of Molech. It depends on how many individual ones you've done it to. The Lord roars forth from Zion. The standard of His judgment does not change. Ammonite, Philistine, American, It's all the same. The fate that is to come to them is recorded in Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, where the Lord says, I have heard the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. How they have 
taunted my people and made boast against their territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a land possessed by nettles and salt pits, a waste forever. The remnant of my people shall plunder them. The survivors of my nation shall possess them. The decrees are not finished, he continues, with Moab. In chapter 2, verse 1, For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. Okay, now, let's begin just for a moment to consider some things. I mean, you've seen these decrees going out, and they all follow the same format. It is like, I mean, they are literally royal, legal, sovereign decrees. They've got a legal formula. Here it is. Here's who's speaking. It's the Lord your God. You've done more than enough for three transgressions and it's for four. You guys are way over the line. I'm not going to revoke the punishment. This is not a warning. Here's what you did. Here's what I'm going to do. Edom, to a large degree, seems to be at the center of this hurricane. Because there, be, there are people that are being punished for selling Israel to them and they're being punished for receiving the Israelites that are being sold to them. All being driven, not out of just any old geopolitical economic forces, but specifically being driven by a hatred that goes to the very center of the enmity that exists between good and evil. This is being driven by hatred that exists between two brothers and God. God hating Esau because Esau is godless and Esau hating Jacob because Jacob is godly. That's what's driving this. This isn't just a rivalry. It just doesn't it's not that it just makes good business sense. Here is Edom at the very heart of this thing. Man, countries are being destroyed. Because they were willing to sell Israelite slaves to Edom. Edom is being destroyed because they are godless and willing to try to crush Jacob down and destroy the promise of God that is being given to him. And so here we have a king in Moab. May not be the most righteous guy you'll ever find, but he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, I learned something this last week. I learned that a compost pile will consume almost everything except for bone. But it won't get the bone. If you want to get rid of bone, you've got to burn it. And if you burn it, when it burns, as you know, there's a lot of calcium in bone. And once calcium has become oxidized, You'll never get it to burn again. White dust. It's not ash. Not in the technical sense of the term. It's the dust to which you will return. And buddy, the king of Moab walked up into Edom, slaughtered the king, and burned his bones until they would just blow away on the wind. Finally, a good guy. No. 
as we said the last or two weeks ago, there is much of the book of Amos that must be filed under don't be a simpleton. Don't be a simpleton. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom, so I will send a fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting, and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and I will kill all its princes with him. Friends, let me tell you something. The problem with the lesser of two evils This is a very real danger. I think Amos is an incredibly applicable book to where we are at today. A very real danger amongst the people of God in the Western world and particularly America today is that we think that if we're given two options, the lesser of two evils is a reasonable solution. And it is not. Because the reality is, is the lesser of two evils is still evil. And we are not an evil people. We are a people that is holy and set apart unto the Lord. Moab was one of the most evil nations on the planet. It is here that Molech was revered to whose fire they threw their infants. Well, if if the Philistines are bad guys and the Tyrrhenians have become bad guys and the Edomites are bad guys and the Ammonites are bad guys and the Moabites are bad guys, then who are the good guys? Well, it's not Syria As a matter of fact, Syria is the very place that the Lord begins giving these decrees. Back up the page in chapter 1 and verse 3. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with the threshing sledges of iron. And so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. And I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. Okay. Hazael and Ben-Hadad. Who are these guys? I mean, up to this point, the Lord has talked about peoples. He's talked about cities. He's talked about He's talked about provinces and he's talked about rulers in general, kings and princes. But here, he's not talking about generalities. He's not talking about cities. He's not talking about regions. He's not talking about places on the map. He's talking about people that have an address. He's talking about two men, Hazael and Ben-Hadad. So let's consider what the Lord speaks of concerning these two men. In the book of 2 Kings, in chapter 8, 
2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1 through 15, we'll get a little taste of the character of the Syrians and the way that they like to do business as these two men interact with the prophet Elisha. And in 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now Elisha said to the women whose son he had restored to life, Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want verse 1. I want verse 7. Just down the page. Now Elisha came to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hazael, one of his servants, Take a present with you and go meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And so Hazael went to meet him, and he took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, 40 camels loads. Now, I don't know what kind of a load a camel can carry, but the first time, you know, the only camels I'd ever seen are the ones you see at, like, the circus when you're a kid. Let me just tell you, the camels we've got here are not the camels they've got in the Mideast, man. Camels in the Mideast are like taking three Brahma bulls, putting two on the bottom and one on the top, and stacking them like a pyramid. They are huge. I have no idea what kind of load a camel can carry, but I can tell you this. I saw one almost spit on Barbara Wilsey, and when it hit the pavement, it was like somebody poured out a bucket of paint. You don't want it. I don't know how, how much stuff 40 camels can carry, but it's a lot. And so here you've got Ben-Hadad. He's sick. He thinks he's dying. He hears that Elisha, the man of God, has come to Damascus. He tells his servant, Hazael, load up 40 of them dudes. Don't let them spit on you. And go down there and ask this guy whether or not I will recover. In verse 9, so Hazael went to meet him, and he took a present with him, all kinds of goods in Damascus, 40 camel loads. And when he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, yeah, that's generous, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elijah said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Okay, now what's up with that? Because first of all, Elisha here is noted as being the man of God. And if you know anything about your Old Testament at all, you know that indeed Elisha is one of the great men of God and one of the great prophets of God of the Old Testament. And the Lord has asked him to do very many difficult things. There will be more difficult things that Elijah is asked to do. And Elijah is one of those guys who will spit in the wind if God asks him to. He's happy to do it, man. He'll do the hard things. We're going to talk this week at camp about being strong and courageous, causing you to do things that more sensible people would never do. Elisha's one of those guys. He's a straight shooter. And so when Hazael comes to him and says, listen, the king, Ben-Hadad, he brought you all this stuff, and he's sick, and he wants to know, is he going to live? Is he going to recover? Elisha looks at him, and he seems to be duplicitous at the least or plotting at the worst. He says, well, he will surely recover from this sickness on one hand, but the Lord has shown me that he will surely die. Actually, what he says is, you go tell him he will recover from this sickness, but the Lord has shown me he will surely die. And so what are you doing here, Elisha? Are you trying to, 
I mean, we know the Syrians are your enemies. Are, are you trying to kind of work the system here? Are you trying to are you trying to be deceptive? Is is this you know is this some kind of cunning that you've got going on? Are you trying to catch him in a trap? What are you doing? Well, it's not what Elijah's doing. It's what's in the heart of Hazael, and Elisha knows it, even though he hasn't spoken it yet, which is why he stares him down to the point of embarrassment. I mean, just locks on him. And I don't know how long this crusty dude, I mean, when you read some stuff that Elijah does, like, whoa, okay? Like, I don't know how long this guy can stare without blinking, but Robert Duvall ain't got nothing on him. And so he just locks on him. He says, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly Die, and he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. Now, guys, when you go to this part of the world, it's a weird deal. It's a different culture. Okay, it's a different culture today. I have no idea what it was like over two thousand years ago. Somehow, I don't think it was more genteel than it is now. And you go there now, and you can watch a Syrian negotiating a price for a piece of fruit in the market, and you would think that a war was going to break out. And they're just talking. That's just how the culture works. If you can stare one of them down when he is the king's right-hand man until he breaks with embarrassment, you've done something. The man of God wept. And this kill just keeps getting more and more bizarre. You tell him he shall surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will absolutely die. Till one guy's embarrassed and then the prophet starts crying. Hazael said, why does my Lord weep? And he answered, because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set fire on their fortresses. You will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that I should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. And then he departed from Elijah and came to his master who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. Notice he didn't tell him the rest of the message. The next day, he took a bedcloth, dipped it in water, spread it over his face till he died. He held him down with a wet bed sheet till he suffocated him and became king in his place. This is the character of the Syrians that God roars forth from Zion at. And he says they crushed Israel. They crushed his people like an iron sledge. The picture here is is a stone floor where they would break down the grain. Grain's not easy, especially when you're talking barley and millet. It is not easy to break forth from the stalk and the husk. And so they had these threshing sledges, these heavy, these heavy wooden sledges that they would place piles of rocks on and then they would pull them around with beast of burden with the grain on the floor and it would break it loose so, so it could be winnowed and be separated from, from the chaff. 
And if you could add iron teeth to a sledge, it made it more effective in doing that. It also made an excellent torture device that kings of this era were known to use. If they didn't like you, they would thresh you with the sledge instead of the grain. He crushed Israel. Not just individuals, but the whole nation. In 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 7, it says, For there was not left of Jehoahaz, that's the twelfth king of Israel, when he came up against the Syrians, there was not left of him an army of more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Man, this is what's left of the mighty armies of David and Solomon. Fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers. Man, Solomon could have misplaced ten times that many in a a counting error. It was all his left by the time the Syrians were done with him. Okay. I mean, Syria's not the good guy. The Philistines certainly aren't the good guys. The Tyrians aren't the good guys. The Edomites aren't the good guys. The Ammonites aren't the good guys. Moab, the Moabites, they're not the good guys. We know Israel is not the good guys. I mean, this is going to be the Lord roaring forth from Zion for the entirety of the rest of the book at Israel because they had the audacity to think that they could come up with a better version of him than he already was. So who's the good guy? That's the question. Who's the good guy in this story? I mean, there's got to be one. Well, he says, because that Syria has done this, that they are going to be exiled off to Kerr. And that is going to be fulfilled when not the Syrian, but the Assyrian completely different group of people and if you thought the Syrians and the Moabites were nasty they ain't got nothing on these folks the Assyrian horde will descend from the north and they will carry Syria into exile and Kerr in 2 Kings chapter 16 verse 9 it says this the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it carrying its people captive to Kerr and he killed Rezin, the king that was on the throne at the time. Man, Assyria is certainly not the good guys. As a matter of fact, they would later sack every single city in Israel and Judah except for Jerusalem itself. They were the most barbaric, ruthless, and brutal people that have ever darkened the face of a plain. These guys had a penchant for cutting kings' heads off and making captives wear them around their necks as they marched them wherever they were going into captivity to. I could list the atrocities that they recorded bragging about what they did, but it's family Sunday, so I won't. As a matter of fact, they're so brutal that J.R.R. Tolkien used them as the template for his orc army in The Lord of the Rings. If you've ever seen the movie where there's the hordes out there and it's as dark and dirty and bad as it can be, that's this, but for real. You go, well, Assyrian may be bad guys, but somebody needed to deal with Syria. 
I mean, at the time, the Syrians were the main threat. Damascus was the one that was threshing Israel like a sledge. And, you know, I mean, the Assyrians, like I said, they, they may not be, you know, good guys, but they're not as evil as the Syrians were. At least their effectual evil wasn't the same. They weren't pressing Israel as hard at the moment. Well, they're certainly not the good guys. Something did have to be done about Syria. I mean, after all, the ends justify the means, right? No. No. Look in 2 Kings chapter 16. The Assyrians don't just show up to deal with Syria. They don't just kind of out of some happenstance or providence pop up one day and give Israel relief from the pressure of Syria that is upon them. Instead, in 2 Kings chapter 16 and verse 5, when Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to wage war on Jerusalem. And you're like, what? Hang on a minute. I thought Syria was crushing Israel. They are. There's no honor among the thieves. Oh, they'll crush them one day. They'll crawl into a partnership with them the next if they think it benefits them both. Crush somebody else. This time, the ire of Syria and Israel together is turned against their brothers in Judah. They came up to wage war on Jerusalem, and they besieged Ahaz, but could not conquer him. And at that time, Rezin, the king of Syria, recovered Eleth for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. And the Edomites came to Eloth where they dwell to this day. Once again, you just can't get rid of these Edomites, man. They're there every time you turn around. And so Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Okay. Possible good guy. Here we've got Ahaz. He's not the king of Israel. He's the king of Judah. Here he is with his back to the wall. The king of Israel who thinks he can replace God with a God of his own means teamed up with the king of Syria, a godless man, standing outside the walls of Jerusalem, doing the very things that Elisha was weeping, knowing that they would do. And in a moment of desperation, in a moment of desperation, when somebody just had to do something, oh man, we got to do something. He sins for the king of Assyria. And he says, come and help me, rescue me from the king of Israel and the king of Syria who are beating down my walls. And Ahaz also took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house, and he sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him, and the king of Assyria marched up against Damascus, and he took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. Okay, look. Nobody wants to have to make a deal with the devil. But somebody had to do something. You heard people say that before? Well, we've got to do something. Have you said that before? We've got to do something. Friends, if you know what to do, not only do you not have to do something, please don't. The reality, according to Scripture, is this. 
Righteousness is a singularity. Singularity. Iniquity is multiplicitous. Saying, I've just got, I don't know what to do, but I've got to do something is like reaching into a haystack and expecting to be able to pick out the needle. It's not going to happen, man. When, when you don't know what to do and say, I've got to do something, the odds are stacked immeasurably against you. And so here's Ahaz, the descendant of David. Man, he's got to do something. They're beating down the walls. And so he takes treasure from his house, and he takes treasure from the house of the Lord, something I'm sure he's not proud of, but you know, desperate times call for desperate actions. And he calls for the king of Assyria, and the king of Assyria comes and he lays siege against the gate bar of Damascus and breaks it. It works. It works. And the iron threshing sledge is removed from their midst and carried off into captivity and curve. Finally, the good guy. Not the perfect kind of, you know, knight in shining armor, but a guy that knew how to get it done. The house of Judah, the sons of David. Not so fast. If I had to sleep in a room... With one of these kings holding a knife, I would pick any of them before I picked him. Ahaz is as evil as an evil man gets. Let's look at his actions first. We'll look at the heart that prompts him second. In 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 10 through 6, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tilgath-Pileazar, it's a great name, hard to say. Right? So Ahaz, he calls for him. Never met this guy before in his life, right? But hey, I'm your brother. Come save me and I'll give you all the gold I've got in the house of the Lord and all the gold I've got in the, king, in the house of the king. He comes and does it. Probably wanted to come whack Damascus anyway. So now Ahaz is going to go to Damascus to meet him. To meet his benefactor. And when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileazar, king of Assyria, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. And it was an impressive sight to see. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. And Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it. He made it before King Ahaz arrived from Damascus. So Ahaz sees this thing in Damascus. He's like, man, we ain't got anything like this back in Jerusalem. Not only sends instructions, makes an exact model, ships it back to Jerusalem, tells Uzziah, man, get this thing built before he can even make it back to his own capital city. It's waiting on him when he gets there. And when the king came from Damascus, the king viewed the altar. And then the king drew near the altar and went up on it and burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and threw the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. 
And the bronze altar that was before the Lord, he removed from the front of the house, from the place between the altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of his altar. And King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the great altar burn the morning burnt offering, and on the, and the evening grain offering, and the king's burnt offering, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering, and their drink offering, and throw it all and throw on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. But the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. And Uriah the priest did all this as King Ahaz commanded. Okay, here you have the most brutal people in the world. And they come at the beckoning of Ahaz and they break the gate bar of Damascus in Syria and they take the city and send all of the Syrians off to exile and Kerr. Whew, sure glad we got that off of our plate. Man, they just traded a copperhead for a rattlesnake. And so here goes Ahaz down there to see his benefactor and when he gets there, here in Damascus... is this great pagan altar to some demon god. And Ahab's impressed. Ain't got nothing like this in Jerusalem. I mean, golly, the altar of the one true God isn't anything like this. This thing's impressive. Find me somebody that can make a model. Get me an engineer. Get a copy of this thing. Tell Uriah. Send him a fax. You know, it's been a while ago. Send him a fax. Get him, the, get him the details. Get this thing built. He goes and he says, okay, here's the deal. We're done with all this house of the Lord stuff. Remember remember when, when, when God came and spoke to Moses and told him, build it exactly this way. Build it the way that I showed you on the mountain. Build this thing the way it actually looks to the best of your ability in heaven. Well, what's good enough for God's really not good enough for Ahaz. The pagans have done a more impressive job. Let's do it like them and we'll forget about all this house of the Lord stuff and we'll start making our morning and our evening sacrifices on this altar. You say, how in the world could a king of Judah of the line of David that sat on David's throne, a throne that according to promise that one day would be filled by none less than Jesus Christ himself, how could that king do something like that. I'll tell you how he could do something like that because he was a wicked man to the core of his being. And what he was doing with that altar was a drop in the bucket of what he was actually capable of. Men act out of their character. Men do out of their being. This was Ahaz's activity. But this is his heart in chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. 
He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God as his father David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the detestable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills under every green tree. A man who will burn his son as offering is capable of anything. There is nothing to which he will not lay his hand. You say, man, I'm sure glad that we don't live in such a barbarous age. Do we not The Father's Day special on the Today Show this week focused on a group of men that were thankful for the blessing of abortion because when they had their first children aborted, it afforded them the opportunity to mature and become better fathers for the children they have now. Now we just put it behind a white sheet and a blue mask and call it civilized. A man who will do this, apart from the repentance that belongs solely as the gift of Jesus Christ, will do anything. Well, where is the good guy? It's not in Syria. It's not in the Philistines. It's not in Tyre. It used to be, but it's not anymore. There's no good men in Tyre. They've forsaken the covenant of brotherhood. It's not in the Ammonites. It's surely not in the Moabites. It's not in us, Syria. They're going to kill everybody they can get their hands on. Only the angel of God himself stops them from destroying Jerusalem. It's not in Israel. It's certainly not in Ahaz. Where's the good guy? Where's the hero, man? Where's the David? Where's the Joshua? Where's the Moses? Where's where's the good guy? Friends, the good guy is at the very beginning. The good guy is the one that is roaring forth from Zion. That's the good guy. It's not a man... It's not a servant. It is the Lord Himself who roars forth from Zion. Jesus speaking in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 18, verses 18 through 19 on what it means to be good. A ruler asked Him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? That's awkward. You know, this guy's a ruler. He knows Jesus is an important teacher. Rabbi, it's the word there for teacher. He's going to butter him up a little. Good, good rabbi. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. Psalm 71. Psalm 71, verse 19. 
Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again from the depths of the earth. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. You say, man, how can you say that? How can you say that the only one, the good guy, is the one that is roaring forth from Zion when the only thing he is roaring forth about is absolute judgment? How can you say that his righteousness reaches to the heavens and that he will increase my greatness and comfort, that he will revive me again, even from the depths of the earth you will bring me up. How can you say that about him when you flip through the pages of Amos and it is burn it, burn it, burn it, and burn it. How can there be hope in this? Because let me tell you, We've talked about abortion quite a bit this morning because it talks about the destruction of the unborn quite a bit here in Amos. I'll tell you something, we perfected evil in the United States, friends. We perfected evil in the United States. Because what we've done is make sure that for every single abortion that happens, there's at least two victims everyone we're destroying children and we're destroying women when we tell them it's going to be okay when we know full well it's not man how can you say that he will do this how can you say that he will lift me up how can you say that when it's just judgment 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 Here's how you can say that. Amos is written to nations and not individuals. Both in judgment. Amos is written to nations and not individuals. Amos, as we have noted, is the gospel. Both in judgment and in mercy. Matter of fact, two weeks ago we looked in James chapter in Acts chapter fifteen verses fifteen through eighteen, where James, quoting out of Amos chapter nine verses eleven through twelve, confirms that the book of Amos speaks of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where it says, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Guys, the righteousness of God. If you're going to look for a good guy in Amos, the only one you're going to find is the only one who's good. That's it. You're not even going to find him where you expect to find him. You're not going to find him amongst the house of Israel. You're not going to find him amongst the house of Judah. You're certainly not going to find him in Moab or or with the Philistines. Where you're going to find him is where the only one that is good is roaring forth from his throne. 
The righteousness of God belongs not to Syria, to Gaza, to Tyre, to Edom, to Ammon, to Moab, or even to the historical kingdoms of Judah or Israel. Instead, the righteousness of God belongs to His people who are among them. His people who are among them. And friends, there are days and there are times when those people among them may be few. But they are there. His righteousness belongs according to the gift of God in grace to people like Hiram of Tyre in the midst of what will become a very evil city. It belongs to people like Rahab of Cana in the midst of Jericho. It belongs to people like Ruth of Moab in the midst of the abomination of the Moabites. It belongs to a girl named Mercy and a boy named My People smack dab in the middle of Israel when the whole book of Amos is about dropping the hammer on Israel. Indeed, it belongs to individuals of every one of these condemned nations and every single tribe, nation, and language that has ever walked God's earth. For in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 10, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice that salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. While there may be righteous people doing righteous things under any given banner at any given time, times change. Times change. There was a day when there was a whole lot of righteousness going on in Tyre. Times changed. They forgot the covenant of brotherhood. There was a day when there was a whole lot of righteousness going on in Israel. Times changed. They decided that they could replace their God with version 2.0 that suited them better. There was a time when there was a lot of righteousness going on in Judah. Times changed. And the king himself is burning his son as a sacrifice. God judges nations and institutions in a way that is different from the way that he judges men. Nations and institutions don't have a soul Nations and institutions aren't made in the image of God. The nations, the institutions of the flesh are not eternal in nature. People are. And in the midst of judgment that is falling upon nation after nation after nation, there is hope in the gospel in Amos for any man, woman, or child that will flee to it. For anyone that will not harden their heart when the Lord roars, but instead will be His people who come trembling when He does. Don't put your faith in ethnicity, 
All these people were convinced that they were supreme, friends. Every one of them. Don't put your faith in ethnicity. Don't put it in nationality. Don't put it in politics. Don't put it in economics. Certainly don't put it in religious denominations. Put your faith in the only one who is actually righteous. Put your faith in the only one that is actually the good guy every time. And when he roars, come trembling. He's going to roar. Friends, if you're his, you are children in the midst of exile. It's all around you. He's going to roar. When he does, come trembling and be saved. For he says to Hosea, they shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of the Syria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. You want to know where the good guy is? The good guy is roaring forth from Zion. Come to him. Be saved. Let's pray.